later and saying, oh, you know, you won't believe who asked this one. Um, you just ask away. Kyle is going to be our moderator. And we and, won't know who asked it, so, so your anonymity is. is protected. Um, let's go on. So this is a book I'd highly recommend if you are looking not so much just at marriage, but if you're like, ooh, gender issues and Christianity. It's a great book called Rediscovering Scripture's Vision for Women, Fresh Perspectives on Disputed Texts. And even if you're not a woman, you might have friends that are. And Craig, you've read this. Yeah, it's okay. really good. All right. So I'm just saying it's recommend not just it. for women. Like, guys, read it. So here's a quote. What strikes us as odd as we encounter the same inequality and imbalance that we encountered in 1 Peter 3. However, the effect on the first hearers is that the male role is redefined and the wives are elevated out of their lower position. Christian marriage is framed in terms of a spiritual, mystical, holy union where love, faithfulness, and covenant form the heart of the unity of a husband and wife. So we're headed to what's a hard passage, but the problem or the challenge is, is that how we hear it today is not how the first hearers heard it. So when you come to the Bible, you want to consider Ephesians, where we're headed, is a letter. How did the people who received the letter hear this? Because it cannot mean today, now see, this is, you had the one, it can't mean today what it did not mean when it was received. Because what we're about to look at today, let me just prepare you ladies, it could be a hot mess. Hopefully we'll demystify that because it's not how it was then. And when you come to a passage, you're also looking for where is Jesus in the midst of this? So that's kind of our setup. We want to look at and acknowledge there is the history behind this text. There's also the personal experiences of those of us who are here reading it. And personal experiences are how our glasses for seeing what is the Bible teaching. Mm. And so I invite you, whatever, if you had great parents with this marriage you want to emulate, or like I want the absolute 180 degree opposite of what my parents had, or somewhere in the middle, if you could take those glasses off for just about 20 minutes, we hope, and see what maybe the first hearers heard. Mm -hmm. So if you have a Bible, if you would open it to Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 15, we're going to read the verses that precede the call to the husband and to the wife in marriage. And so this is Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 15. Be very careful then how you live not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless." In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. 
This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. All right. We're going to help, I hope, with this. <laughs> so let me jump in here. Yeah. So when we think about the, the church on this, this note, um, this text is not just about a kind of role of being a husband or of being a wife. It's really about the kind of posture we adopt in the church. It, it talks about the posture that's adopted by a husband and wife towards each other. But the, the first mandate in this text is about a posture towards each other in the church. Notice what it says in Ephesians 5.21. Would you read it with me? Submit, Submit to one, one another, another out, out of reverence, reverence for, for Christ. Christ. This is the word to the church. It overflows out of the fullness of the Spirit. This overflows out of being wise about life. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And in this, our reference point for life has changed. The reference point for our posture towards each other in the church is a reference point of Christ in the church. So if we were to look at a person A in the church who was approaching person B in the church and they're making a move towards this person approaching, the word to submit suggests that we would come under and uphold and lift up this person, that we would treat them as precious and important. We're not just going to run over them. So relationships in the church are not your latest football game or video game, where in coming, we want to see if I can run over that person. No, I want to see if I can lift up that person. And likewise, the same movement is happening. Submit to one another out of reverence for who? For Christ. So always there in the background is Jesus as the point of reference for our relationships together. And frankly, the highest and most beautiful model of coming under us to support us and to change us. That's Jesus, right? So there's a cultural press here, right? Like, when this passage goes off, it feels like there's a little bomb that goes off in, the, in your mind or your heart, and you're like, Okay, if they're female, sure? it's a big bomb. Don't, yeah, don't so diminish it. Yeah, so if you're female it. today in our culture, there's a big bomb that's going off. If you were female in the first reading of this text, you might have gone, yeah, that's the way it is. Okay, I get it. Because the cultural setting of that time, first century relationships were defined by knowing your place in the hierarchy. And I don't a, want to have a place, which is why this is hard to listen to. Yeah, this is so hard. I'll it's make so my place, different in our setting and culture here in Vancouver, in UBC. Our sense of being mutually equal. Is it boom? This has been turned in our culture. But in the first century, it was here. And in fact, where the bomb goes off in this text would have been for the men sitting in that room going, oh, you mean the point of reference for relationships isn't me? I think men in the 21st century sometimes Oh, yeah, okay, this. so here it is. It's actually still the same. The point of reference for relationships isn't just me. It's Christ. And then it's not really about where I am in the hierarchy. See, the transformed relationships of the gospel and of Jesus would have created a setting where there's a pushback against just a law and order society. In fact, in the first century, um, in Rome, there was radiating from Rome all kinds of new laws and edicts coming from the the emperor about how men and women were supposed to relate and how the household code was supposed to work. And Roman men in the first century knew that they were at the top of the pile. And they knew that the rights of a Roman man was to do what he wanted and also to have sex with whatever he wanted whenever he wanted it. 
He had license to do what he wanted. And so those cultural biases and expectations would have felt the press of this emerging mutuality of the gospel coming out. And then there's just plain sinfulness. Sinfulness always wrecks relationships, doesn't it? Oh, you're not sure? It does, doesn't it? Sinfulness wrecks relationships, and that's interior to us, and we know that actually crosses the bridge. There wasn't a point in time between the first century and this century where somehow sinfulness just changed. And this is part of why I think this passage is so hard, is that the ripples of pain that we've experienced from our parents in our own attempts to find people um, to hang out with, all of those ripples impact how we come to this text. Because we have been hurt by other sin and probably some of our own perspectives. Um, in addressing married men and women in the church, husbands and wives, I'm going to reread this passage. Help me, Jesus. So, submit to one another out of reference for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to our, your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Um, so, 28 years ago, I went to a conference because Craig was on staff as a youth and music minister. We weren't married yet. We weren't. We were getting engaged. We were getting married in May. And the pastor said, okay, all the wives, and we'll throw Ellen in there. I'm going to send you to this women's conference. Whew. That we are married after this women's conference is the grace of God. Um, I'm not lying to you. She I came back messed up. So this woman was teaching this passage, and then she starts telling, and she tells stories. And there were women there. There were women there older than my mama. There were women there older than I am today, telling me what kind of lingerie their husband liked to know and wear, and not him wear, her wear. And like, too he's much like, information. It was too much information. He was a president of his major Christian organization. I did not need to know that, and I really did not want to know that. And then this other woman told the story, and she read this passage, and then she told how the Lord had convicted her that she had not been humble, and how she literally started kneeling before her husband, and how she would literally go to the store only with her husband, and he chose all her clothes. And I was like, help me, Jesus. I am not doing that. Like, I love Craig O'Brien, but there is nothing about me. So when I come to this text, I'm so worried that you might think that, that it just makes me anxious. Like, I usually love teaching the Bible, but I'm just going to tell you this. It's not because of what this teaches, but it's because how we hear it makes it stressful. Mm -hmm. um, and so here is what I think first century women in Ephesus did not always have choice in who they got to marry. Um, they had influence sometimes if you read some of the extra biblical literature stories but they all didn't get to choose huh and I was choosing coming back to my engaged self now the truth of the matter is that I had already long ago committed to the fact that I was yielding my life to Jesus and that that was a lifelong decision and if using our language, posture, because I trusted Jesus, and he was good, and he was also wise enough. Now, the truth was, is that I didn't have a lot of trouble yielding to Craig, because I had chosen well. So, so think about this. Um, when you choose, this is, I guess, for women, are you choosing not perfect men, but men who are developing character that is godly, character that is wise. They don't have to be there arriving, but they are building in the habits of choosing wisely. Also, like, are they somebody you want to be with? Because you are not going to yield in any way to somebody you don't respect. I respected Craig. I respected his judgment. I also actually, frankly, respected that he was working with me on things. Um, okay, here's Yeah, the you can say it. Go for it. Okay. Ladies, don't date fools. <laughs> like, 
here's the truth is, is that that's when it's hard. And so, so like he might be nice and your mama might want you to see him, but if he's a fool, don't stay there. Um, and, and guys, do, are you developing the kind of character that somebody can see is wise and is fun and is trustworthy? So it goes both ways. If you want to be dateable, either one of you, you have to make some choices. Um, but here is why I think this is so awful. So when I was um, in university, or right before, there was a scholarship available, um, but it was connected to the military. So besides being a pacifist, it wasn't going to work that way. But it was also not going to work because of my temperament. There is nothing in me that is naturally yielded. You tell me to do something, and my first response internally, I might be, by now I've learned to be polite. I've, I kept my job. But I'll, inside I'll go, why? You know, it's Who so said? true. Some of you, you, you just don't know how things are with us. So we were visiting a farm, and we were going into a different area of the farm, and we had to go in under a door, and there was a little wire running across the door. And as I come through, I look back, and I say, don't touch that. So then I get all the way in on the other side, and she's not there. I turn around, and she's waiting for me. She's looking right at me, and she goes, because he didn't tell me why. Now, I'm a city girl. I don't know anything about farms. I should have listened to him. It there was, was a lot of wire. electricity in that little wire. But this is, okay. But, but here's the problem, is that my nature, there is nothing in me. I am an oldest child who is bossy First as child. bossy can be. And I, there's nothing in me that is naturally submissive. It's just not how I'm wired. I don't think I'm physiologically wired, and I know I'm emotionally not. But here's what I realized the challenge in this text, when I was like freaking out about this married woman on her knees and clothes and all that, is that I have completely yielded to Jesus because I trust him. And I've chosen well in this man. And that what's really being threatened in some way is what I believed about myself. And so once you are convinced that you are an image bearer of God, this is not so threatening. But if you think someone is taking away who you are in Christ and your capacity to think and to do amazing things, then this feels diminishing. One of my favorite stories about yieldedness is the story of Susanna Wesley and her husband Samuel. The Wesleys might sound familiar to you. They sort of launched from their children uh, the Methodist movement of people who follow Jesus in those churches. So Methodist churches would draw some of their theological lines to this family. And Susanna Wesley was running a household and her husband at times struggled financially. He went to prison twice uh, because he couldn't pay his bills. They had debtors' prisons there. And so you went to prison and he had to pay his bills. And one time he decided he needed to go to London and preach in London because he was also a pastor who couldn't pay his bills. And <laughs> 17 children. And 17 children. Yeah, so they, they had a lot of kids. Not all of them survived, but. They had 17 kids, so... So we're you know. telling you a bunch of marriage stress, but clearly they also liked each other. Yeah. So Samuel was in London preaching, and he assigned a fellow they call a curator to actually be the preacher while he was away at this little church. And um, Susanna decided that she didn't really think the curator was doing a good job, so she began inviting people Curate. to her... Curate. Yeah, to her home to hear a sermon, and she would read the sermon... Well, before you know it, there were 200 people at her house after the service for the ministry there. In the her preaching. Homes. The preaching. Samuel got word of this, and he wrote a letter. And in the letter, he tells her to stop doing this, that he didn't think it was right. So she wrote back to him. And in that letter, she uh, said, if you desired me to stop, that is not sufficient. You need to command me to stop. My full, in full and express terms, as would absolve me from all guilt and punishment for neglecting the opportunity to do good. Needless to say, 
she kept preaching. Do you know, the, the nature of their relationship in yieldedness was such that it didn't mean the end of the person. It actually meant there was a dialogical conversation going on between them and between the couple. I mean, like even politics at home was a big deal for the Wesleys. He got upset at the end of the prayer one day. He was praying for William of Orange, and she refused to say um, amen at his prayer to bless King William. She didn't like him. And, and afterwards, they got so upset together that uh, she left home for six months and lived elsewhere because of politics in the house and a prayer. King she William, came home when he died. King William died, and she named her next child after the queen that she liked, Queen Anne. So they had tension. They had fights. She moved out for six months. Marriage is not easy. You've probably had front row seats to family members or friends where it is hard. Um, <clears throat> and here's the thing. If you look at this picture, we'll go back to the picture. Um, red car, green truck, not yielding. What's going to happen? There's going to be a crash. Guess what? In human relationships, we crash with each other. And we crash. Um, I don't think it's actually because we disagree. Disagreeing's all right. Being in different lanes, even going in different places. But we crash because no one will yield in how we relate. And so <clears throat> this passage, now look, you know we're getting serious when we put Greek up here for you all. <laughs> this is straight out of Bible Hub. You can go online and go to the interlinear Bible and do this for yourself. Verse 21, I want you to look at that first word. In English, it's hypotazomenoi. Be submitting yourselves. It's an ongoing stance. Now, this is the other thing I want you to see that's beautiful that I had to research out and work out. Be submitting yourselves to one another in reverence of Christ. Guess what? So, ladies, it feels kind of heavy on us. But it's actually because Craig's not just my husband. We're also brothers and sisters in Christ. Guess what? He has to submit to me too. And so it's a mutual submission space is how this whole passage starts. And the submission is not because this person's right and great necessarily. He happens to be. But it's in reference for Christ. My emotional growth has often been around things that are in reference to Christ. Um, another place in Colossians 3, it says to forgive. And you're not forgiving because the other person's necessarily sorry or the other person's made reparations, but you're forgiving because Christ has forgiven you. And so somehow that does a tweak in my brain because my submission is because I trust Jesus and it's mutual. Then, in verse 22, wives to the own husbands as to the Lord. And I thought, well, why is, if it's mutual, why is he re-saying that? Ha. And then I think about marriages I've seen. Where out in public, it's all good. And then you get home, and who rules the roost with a meanness? Or who is making cruel little jabs in public? So it's just an interesting thing to realize that it's mutual submission, and then he's reiterating it for the wives because there's something that he knew that was happening in the relationships of that church where maybe the wives didn't have a yieldedness. Also, just a few things to point out. They didn't choose their spouse. Their spouses may not have known Christ. The women may have just become Christians. And they're having to figure out what kind of transformation knowing Jesus is going to bring to their actual um, family. Now, do I submit to you? Mm -hmm. Clearly with the electric wire, I didn't. Yeah. <laughs> A few things like that. <laughs> so one of the things to also note in this text, when it talks about submission, there's this big picture metaphor that's happening too in the next verse uh, that's talking about head. Christ is the head of the church just as the husband is to be head in the marriage. And this gets really confusing because we all have heads. If you're here today, you have a head, you know, touch it, there it is. 
It's functioning and it's working. So exactly what is being meant by this. Some of it, some of the help here for us is in the word kafal. That if you will look at that word and unpack it, where does it say in the scripture that Christ is the head, the kafal? Like, and what is that? And one of the main metaphors that's uncovered with that word is that Christ is the big rock. He's the big stone. He's the cornerstone. He's the capstone. It's actually an architecture word that says here is the the big stone, cornerstone, that's been set down in a foundation from which everything else in this building is going to reference and be built. And it actually will be built upon. So Christ is the foundation of the church. In Psalm 118, it speaks prophetically of Christ and building the church, that the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. Now, look, there's, there's hope for some of you for marriage, guys. You've been rejected, and you could become a capstone. And this you is, might actually get this into This is a, a little, like, practical piece. Practical. Okay. Okay. Um, it's very hard in our society to get married without asking somebody out. Right. And guys that have been rejected. They stop asking. They quit asking. Yeah. And this is a piece that is part of relationships. Even in marriage, you're going to sometimes feel rejected. And learning how to metabolize rejection is a relational necessity. So when Christ is the kafal, look at this, we, we notice what he does to actually have that role, that position. He lowers himself. He sacrifices himself. He gives himself. He has rights and powers and privilege just because of his position. And the movement of the gospel asks husbands to do the same thing. Even if your society is living this way, the gospel presses you to live this way in relationship with your wife. This would have gone off in that room like a bomb. But you know, just in marriage, there's bombs going off all the time. Like when we first got married, it wasn't just a few days into marriage. I was like, how could you think of so many things that we need to talk about all of a sudden? <laughs> and there was always He a didn't list. know how to fold towels properly. Right. Or, and he had to learn this. And he needed now we've to, moved to, in. And he cooks spaghetti oh without following a recipe. Even cakes. And I have a recipe. This is the taste I want. I don't want some random, every time different kind. So when there was a Even disagreement. Even cakes. Okay. Th- there's a story there. There's a story there. <laughs> The man was so confident that he entered a cake competition and then made a cake without, without a recipe. following a recipe. Mm. It actually wasn't very good. <laughs> we called it the earthquake cake because it just fell apart. It was a mess. But, you know, in marriage and early in marriage, many men, and, and this, this is beyond stereotypes. Guys, this is yeah, actually studied. biographically. Um, there's a, a, a social scientist at Washington State University. His name's Gottman. And he has studied in the lab what is happening physiologically when men and women get into a conflict. What's happening when they're, when they're here or even if they're here and their structure about relationships and they're in a conflict, the man's physiological vital signs all start to race. And before you know it, the man is physiologically flooded. And when you're flooded, it's hard to listen. When you're flooded, there's a whole story you begin to tell yourself. I remember in early days of marriage being so angry so quickly and really not able to figure out why, except to say, well, it must be her fault. Okay. Why I'm feeling this way. And appreciate. So this is where learning yieldedness would have helped me. If I, um, He goes quiet when he's flooded. And I get highly communicative. And he goes more. And I'm like, why aren't you answering me? I want, and like I get aggressive because he's not talking. And all he needs 
his space and quiet. <laughs> Breathe. And so these are the things that you have to learn in marriage and actually relearn in marriage, how to enter into conflict and crucial conversation. So really, what is the call to a husband? Let's look at that, that text. It's worth reading again. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. So the call to husbands here has three aspects. The first aspect is that the husband is actually called to love his wife as Christ loved the church. That's the movement. And Christ's movement in loving the church is one where Christ comes under these people who have fallen so low and lifts them up. And so it's that same movement there of a husband towards the wife saying, I will come and lift you up. I will love you. I will actually lay down my life for your... Now, you know, guys, we like to... We've got lots of hero movies. And we like to think that, oh, laying down my life means I'm going to step up and be the protector bring it on, world. But that's not the movement here. The movement here is laying down your life for your wife's sanctification. What? For her to be more holy, more blameless, more pure, and for her maturity in Christ. That means you're laying down your life in order to create space for your wife to become somebody, to be who God would have her be in all of her fullness and dynamism and power and beauty and love and service and brilliance of mind. Let all of that, you are all of those things, all of that come out. But here, and here's the thing, is sometimes the greatest thing of that is giving time. Yeah. Opportunity I did ask Ellen. You know, the verses are a little embarrassing. So I get embarrassed. This week, in my reading through the Bible, I was actually reading Song of Solomon. And when Ellen came in, you know, Song of you all don't know this chapter? It's the most erotic book in the Bible. And so when, when Ellen came into the dining room where I was having a little quiet time, I was like, it was just reflexive. I know you didn't know because I just covered it up. So I that feel, is just weird. We've yeah, been married a long time. We have a bunch but, of children. But I just felt a little embarrassed. Like, who? Yeah. Wow. And so this, I had to ask Ellen, so when did you feel like I was doing these things? You know, like washing. Not the Song of Solomon oh, things. Yeah, yeah. These no, things. The things here in Ephesians. But, but even these are sort of embarrassing. Like, you know, what does it say? I'm washing you with water. With, like with the word, like, what? Hello, TMI? I mean, this, the Bible is really earthy and personal here on this thing that you must get engaged. And so I had to ask her, when did, when did you actually feel like I was helping you grow as a person? When did I actually do anything that helped you? Um, and I came up with a few things, but one of the biggest things was when he listens. I process out loud. So I think in pictures. Um, I have very quick, rapid-firing images, and I need to think in words before I act. But my first words aren't all pretty. They aren't all words I would repeat in public. And so when Craig listens, sometimes I'm like, I'm kind of tired of hearing myself. Why are you still listening? He goes, it was quite a, quite a gift. He says, because you are thinking out loud, it's almost like you're praying with me. And I know that you're going to get to exactly where you need to be for what is right and good and giving this space. And I really did feel, I do feel ongoing that that's a piece. So these words here, the verbs, 
speak of nurture and nourish and cherish. I, I don't really like the NIV here. It just sort of makes it like you're taking care of an animal, like feed and care your animals. Not so, not so dramatic. But the language here actually is, is very caregiving, to nourish, to nurture, to cherish. Like to, the, these are the words that are most often used in the Scripture of a woman's movement towards her children to nourish, to care, to cherish them. They're also used of God in that way towards his people, towards Israel. And they're Paul's, the Apostle Paul's, favorite words to describe the pastoral ministry in the church. That the pastoral ministry of the church is to nourish and care and to cherish the other. And that's supposed to be the activity of a man in marriage, to nourish, to care, to cherish his wife. And then if the bomb wasn't really going off, Paul is like, you know, you're both part of this new thing for which Jesus died. You're both part of his church. You're both members of Jesus' body. You would never want to abuse someone who is in the body of Jesus. Never. Um, Craig wrote a responsive reading that was read in our wedding, responsively, interactively, and one of the lines was that we would become a dynamic union for good. And that's what we've prayerfully been trying for a long time to be. Um, part of that comes out of these verses in Ephesians 5. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Just a pause. That's a matriarchal um, action in a patriarchal society. Notice who's doing the leaving and cleaving. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Now, one thing I'm thinking is, why would you marry, like, in, a, in, in today, when we have choice, why would you marry somebody you don't respect? Hmm? But what's going to happen is you're going to be married a while, and then he's going to do something that you don't Stupid. like. And then <laughs> you're going to have to learn, well, how do we do teamwork when right now I don't respect you? Um, and this is an interesting thing to me I realized only later. At work, I yield to my boss if I don't agree. If I'm at work, mm, if I disrespect, there is no one that knows it. I work together. So why will I do that for money? And, what, and in my particular work, I have a vocational sense. And then not be yielded at home and not try to work out on teamwork when we don't agree. Um... The respect piece, I think, is hard because what happens when you feel disrespected or unconsidered? Something happens. Um, we all have different responses. Mine is I'm a fighter. Um, and it doesn't do great. And now, I have never hit you. No. Just. Ooh, but I can, I can word. I have brothers. I'm like quite wordy. Um, and so learning how to stay connected and stay respectful um, has been part of our developing a dynamic union, hopefully for good and for God's glory. Let's ask questions. I think the, the moderator is probably ready over there. There's a quote here. I want you to see this quote. Let's just consider this, that Paul's letter to the Ephesians brings out the idea that submission to Christ is the means to the pouring out of love, grace, riches, power, and untold blessings from God. That really, this is the way of love, that we submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, and in marriage, that we operate out of love and uh, respect. So we're going to give Kyle a chance to ask these questions for us. Can we put okay. the Q&A? He says one more minute, yeah. so why don't you tell a, quest, tell a story? Tell a story. 
you do. You should I, tell us. I will tell stories. Um, here is the piece, is that we've talked a lot about early marriage, and then we have, we're here. We haven't given you, and we're not trying to give you a view of just our marriage, because there's lots of marriages. But the ripples around how your children, I remember one time we were fighting. Now, when we fight, it's really quiet. We're not, well, okay, I could be a screamer, Craig's, but not at all. And I remember we were having words, but very quiet words. And Michaela walked in the kitchen. She's only like seven. She goes, don't be mean to my daddy. And I was like, oh, child, <laughs> you do not know what I am not saying to your daddy in front of you that needs to be said. Because like, in this sentence, I was right. And, and so it was like, now I'm not just managing us. I'm managing this child who's defending the one that is wrong. And I'm sure I'm right. Do you hear the problem with humility? And maybe that's why these words are hard for me to teach, is because these words are still shaping my character. With Craig, I have no trouble trusting. And when we've made big decisions, we make them together. But there is a yieldedness um, to his wisdom but also he's like I'm fully in the decision-making process so I needed the words around submission because it's hard in my character okay uh, so let's first give him a big hand <laughs> thank you very much okay so um, I'm just going to kind of go in the order of what they've come. They, they keep coming. So <laughs> if we have time, I'll get to the one, whoever just sent one through. <laughs> um, OK, so the first is, can you define fools? OK. It's a good question. Yeah, that's um, a good fools question. Fools would be someone who is you don't, do not have a clear reference point for living. Like, in this context, we're saying, is this person walking committedly with Jesus? Now, um, some of you aren't Christians, so you're like, well, that's not my reference point. But then what is the basis for the person's values? Because then they're not shifting all the time, changing. Another full piece, mm, ladies, if they've ever stepped out, be done. Like, you mean cheated on them? Cheat them. Like, right. I mean, if they don't know how to control who they are looking at and how much and how flirty they are, that's, that, that means they're not a one-woman kind of man yet. That would be foolish. Don't go any further. Um, and it may be a maturity piece. They don't have to have it all together. They're not going to. They're human. But are they trying to grow not just to make money, but in their character. Um, and can you trust their word? Is what they say true? Now, they may have working memory problems and forget they've told you something. We had to go through this. I was like, you are lying to me. I am not lying. I, when do, and I would know where he sat and how he said it. And he goes like, okay, I'm sorry, I just forgot. Forgetting is different from lying. But that I think that would be... Do they have a reference point for values? Um, and for in the Christian context, do they love Jesus? Um, are they faithful? One woman kind of man. And um, third would be trustworthy words overall. Yeah, read Proverbs. There's so much there about the different kind of fools. Uh, that, and there are. There are actually lots of different kinds of fools through the book of Proverbs. Yeah. And uh, I'll add quickly. Yeah the emotional manipulation if you see any of that and this is either way this is you know looking at uh, you know a, a man looking at a woman or a woman looking at a man if you see any emotional manip manipulation get out like get out early because it's going to continue um and and i'll say guys don't be fools you know? <laughs> <laughs> um okay so uh, a couple of these i th they came in right before you i th I think you sort of answered it, but they're important, so I want to jump back to them. Can you put up um, the verses like 22 to 24? Um, so there's a, a sort of a repeating of the command, wives submit. Is there any theological significance to that? I think the repetitiveness, well, first of all, okay, remember when we looked at the Greek, Verse 22, it's actually the verb's not there. It's like more like wives also do this. 
So I think it's something, remember this is a letter to a specific church in the city of Ephesus. And so Paul knew them. Paul knew what was happening. These are people Paul loved. Like they came out to his ship and kissed and cried when he said this is the last time. He spent two years with them, so he knew their business. So submit is in here twice. 21 is to one another. Then it's wives also. And verse 24, he's wanting the church to yield to God or Christ and wives to the husband. So I think it's very much in the context of what was happening in Ephesus. Um, and then the next one right after that is, um, uh, can you, can you describe a little bit more what it means for, for the man to be head of his wife and Mm -hmm. what is that dynamic referring to? So let's pull those verses up, a couple slides. Oh, it's in that passage. That's great. The next. Okay. One more. Thank you. So. Uh, in, in this point of reference, he would have been describing what they knew was culturally true, that the family identity had its identity from the husband's place in society, right? And so the husband's status and movement needs to be like Christ. Their society put it this way, and in Christ it's being turned this way. And so headship in its expression here, is to be headship like Jesus towards the wife. I am going to lay down my life in order to participate in what Jesus is doing in her life and in our family together. That's the movement and posture there. Now, the difficulty in carrying this text from then to today is that in our society we generally live this way. And so in the mind of many evangelical men is this need to try to reassert this. That's the impulse is, oh, in order to apply this text I have to do this. No, your society is actually doing you something helpful. Your society is doing you a favor. It's not loading you up with an extra burden to be this great authoritarian. Um, So don't think Jesus is trying to load you up with that, guys. Like, Jesus is not trying to let you be God in this marriage. The point of reference in the marriage is still Jesus. So take some of the pressure off. And when the list arrives, like, I started having to ask Ellen would you give me five days notice on the list? I was allowed 10 things a week. I would give it to him on Monday. Praise God. And he would have to talk to me on Friday, but he better not miss a point on that list. (laughs) And so on Friday, I've had time to think about it. This is not our date. It's just a time set aside to go through the list. And, you know, she would always feel bad. She'd be like, don't you have things for the list? He had no list because he couldn't remember. He doesn't remember. He doesn't remember when I've done him wrong. It's quite gracious. Don't have a list. And so those those extra days. So my point of reference during that time was, oh God, I've got to be the wise one and know everything and have all the money and all the answers. And all I wanted was him to talk about these things. So hard. And so, you know, this point of reference of Jesus being the head of the household, of Jesus being the head of the church, means that I could also submit to Jesus and say, hey, Jesus, I need some help down here. Because i got to have this talk on Friday, and I, don't, I have no idea. Y'all, this was not a complicated <laughs> list. This was like, oh, can we reschedule who's clean in the bathroom or what day it's cleaned on? To, to when are we going to Italy, which we've still never been to. But, you know, it was just the, can we talk about this? <laughs> okay. Um, I've got a list of questions here. So that are coming. It, we've got to, time for oh, a couple more. Okay, a couple more. So I, I'll hit... Um, I'll hit some and try to combine them as best I can. Um, it kind of an important one around this. Like you keep referring, you keep saying Christ is a reference point. Mm-hmm. Well, what if, what if Christ is not in the equation? Yeah. What if the partner, you know, or or you know, the person that's here says, "Well, Christ is not my reference point." Mm-hmm. How does this translate? Yeah, let me take that on. Okay. 
So in uh, marriage, one of the things that Gottman and others have talked about is that a healthy marriage uh, without religion, just a healthy marriage relationally is going to have some qualities. One of those qualities is that there's going to be connection and there's always this attempt and move towards turning towards one another and trying to connect. So that, that's an aspect of it. The second component is that there's a sense of commitment, that there's a covenant. There's actually been a promise that you didn't just slide into marriage, but instead you decided to marry. And those seem really different, but the point of reference here is, okay, I decided. Okay, and so here's what happens, decide versus slide. Oh, wow, I'm approaching 30. Or, or wait, I've graduated, check. Now I have a job, check. Next thing on the list, let's get married. Okay, well, okay, I've been seeing this guy a while, and okay, and that's sliding in because you have something to check off on your list. Or you're pushing 30 and you start worrying about your biological clock. Whereas covenant is, this is a person I can commit to the rest of my life to. So if the reference point isn't Jesus, it, what are their basis for their values and their commitments? Yeah, it becomes the point of, I decided, we decided, and we're staying here together. I remember, okay, this is embarrassing. Great. Now, Jesus helps, right? He does. Jesus helps. And, and, and I would also say, if, if one person knows Jesus and one person doesn't, you probably need some very helpful guidance in that that's broader than we'll do here. But I also think, are you the kind of person that makes commitments or if it works out? Um, grade eight, I'm sitting in Sarah Tyler, now Sarah Tyler Rhodes' house, and I said, well, I know I won't get divorced. Now, I hadn't met Craig. I didn't have a boyfriend. I was in grade eight. And she says, well, how do you know that? And I said, because I won't get married till I know it's going to last. And she goes, but you can't know. And, and we're having this debate. But what it is, is, is that I knew I'd wait until it was somebody I could commit to. And so if that Thanks. happens, you know, there, there, there's like divorce or relationship falls apart or someone acts the fool. I mean, this, these things happen right? And it's very difficult to move into a repair of that because it can be really annihilating to your sense of personhood and who you are in a relationship. So the movement, again, even there's still hope mm -hmm. for relationships and good connection and even for marriage after something like that. We believe that Jesus can work dramatically in a life to restore a sense of well-being in who you are. And so the, the introduction here of, of marriage in this conversation isn't meant to be about condemnation, and it's actually not meant to load you up so you can go judge your parents. <laughs> oh, I Pray know. for them. I it's know. hard work. So th this, is, this is the thing. You get some time away, and you start evaluating. You're like, well, I don't want to be like my dad. When I was about... I don't know, 42 or so, my dad said, you know, I, I, I didn't want to tell you this, but the older you get, the more like me you'll become. I was like, thanks, Dad. <laughs> but, but here's the thing, that, that doesn't have to be a curse, right? That, that can just be, oh, well, there's this, these aspects and here it is. But the work of Christ in my life is that he is reshaping, reforming us as persons. And in marriage with a kind of commitment, together, marriage becomes the school of holiness, the school of growth. So if Christ is in the reference point, I would say, what is the reference point for the relationship, and what are you building on? What is the shared foundation? And then the four C's. Ah. We didn't quite finish them. We started and then got distracted ourselves. Connection, covenant or commitment, communication, and then community. Who's around you that's helping hold and encourage the relationship? So those are four things. Um, the research down at University of Washington says. And can I add to one of those, like just that if the reference point is not Christ, do you see a consistency in however they're acting out their reference point? Yeah, right. that's really good. Keep coming and the relationship needs a, a reference point then. Yeah, now, we have a lot right. of questions, right? Uh, we have a lot of questions. Uh, we're not going to get to all of them. Maybe yeah. we can figure out a way to yeah, get so these Yeah, so we up. have two um, more sermons in this series. Next week, the, the sermon will talk about women and ministry, and we're going to take the passage in Timothy. 
Um, those of you who are on the retreat, we will record it. And uh, so this passage in Timothy that raises up these issues of, well, what is the role of women in the church and ministry? We're going we're gonna to hit that head on. And then the week after that, uh, we're going to come back to this same passage and text and pick up with some of your questions as well. So if you get away later today and tomorrow and you're like, oh, I wish I'd asked this question, you can send it over and in two weeks we'll try to include it in the, the message. There's, I'm going to ask one more question and it's kind of two-part, but I think it's yeah. an important one. And it's, it's um, so we talk about choosing the right person. So there's this whole idea culturally of the one, you know, this is the one and it comes with a really deep voice, right? And so how do you know that you've chosen the well, one? Well, it took or is us for one? four and a half okay. years, so it's not like we're as experts. It took us a while to know in some ways. Um, it didn't take me a while because I wouldn't have dated him if he wasn't possibly somebody I could marry. Like, that was kind of my standard. I would not stay in a dating relationship with someone I couldn't envision the rest of my life. But I didn't tell him that because... <laughs> you wanted me to ask. I wanted him to ask. Yeah. My family's very expressive, and I say I love you to everybody. He, I loved and adored his roommates. He lived with four other guys. And so it's time to go. And say, love you, Russell. Love you, Mark. Love you, Scott. Bye, Craig. Because he... <laughs> he had never said, I love you. But now you have to appreciate, he didn't grow up his... I heard the first time his father ever said, I love you. Now, he has a great dad. We're not trashing. But saying I love you wasn't a part of his family's culture. So we dated two years. And, y'all, he broke up with me the first time he told me he loved me. It didn't go well. It was a bad day. It was a really bad day. Um, clearly, we worked it out. Yeah. But back to <laughs> so I, I don't how know. do you choose like, the one? My, okay. my friends Bryce and Susie say, well, how do you know if it's the right one? Well, after you say, I do, it's the right one. <laughs> um, realize this letter was written to people who had arranged marriages. Um, so that's like, but in the choice, many of you, most of you are still in the choice making thing. I would look at shared values and, and that's around Jesus. That's also, you've got to look at money. Um, you want some chemistry? You, yeah. Um, so attraction, but see, okay, now here's the thing. Attraction does not mean it's going to last a long time. You will feel attracted to more than one person in your life. Do you know, if you're feeling that you can't bring the person you're dating around your community, uh, maybe there should be some alarm bells going off. Mm. Like, oh, wow, what's, what's with that? Why am I always hiding this person from the circle of relationships that, that I have? Might be the wrong person or the wrong community. Could be one or the other. Could be one or the other. Um, I'll add to that just a choice. Like, you know, the I do, once you say I do, I mean, it's, it's a choice. Every day you choose that person, right? Craig's not a list maker, and I was. I am. Um, and so here's a piece. There's irony in this. But I knew that in marrying Craig, something that really deeply mattered to me was not, okay, traveling. He looked at it as luxurious and needless expense. And it's kind of necessary for my wellness. And so one of the things I realized is, oh, in marrying Craig, I'm going to be stuck in the same place forever. But what I decided is that being less mobile with somebody of his character was trumped. Ooh, that's words. doesn't work anymore. But it... <laughs> it, did. Um, overrode. it did. It overrode. It overrode my desire for travel. So what? Here's what. Here's the internal conversation. Am I willing to give up traveling to have this man in my life daily? And, and clearly, the answer was yes. And huh, the Lord still let us travel some. Um, but things like that is thinking. Okay, these things matter, but does this person matter more? And there's sort of a, a retrospective look at that is, what if I've invested a lot of time and energy and of my life and maybe even in marriage and I wake up and this is not the person I thought I married? Yeah. Can we pause, put that question on hold? That's a big one right there because we change. 
You know, the person you marry and meet at the um, altar, so to speak, does change. <laughs> like, we're, we're different kind of people. Things happen in, in your life. You get sick. You know, you, you experience a trauma. Something happens to you. It radically alters. You get mentally ill. You've, you've changed. This, this other person is you not You gain a lot, a lot, a lot of weight. We gain weight. You, you have kids. You know, things happen. And your bodies change. And so then this, this anticipation of the future and things are going to change makes us really anxious, doesn't it? It does. It creates a certain anxiety for relationships. And, and so as we move into the Lord's Supper and uh, closing our worship gathering today, thank you, Kyle. If and, you uh, felt your question wasn't answered, two weeks, yeah, two weeks. or in blogging, we'll get yeah. to it. Yeah. Um, one of the things to really recognize is that it says of Jesus that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And that in the life of the church, what Jesus has done is he has come and he took on flesh and he laid his life down on a cross and he was raised up on that cross. And in that moment, he was saying to you and to me, I do.